Welcome to the Jam Session Radio Hour. I'm your host, John Landis. This is the third and final in a series of, of uh, from an interview that was done back in 2017 by Dave Schroeder of Mike Maneri, noted vibraphonist. He's had a great career. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Continues to produce wonderful music. Again, this is the third in that series. Um, so let's go ahead and listen to that uh, portion of the interview. But let me ask you, who... who uh were your contemporaries at that time, or who else was on the scene that the critics would say, yeah, man, this is really jazz? Well, it took a while, you know, I mean, you know, Weather Report was not popular with the critics, I mean, with, with audiences, yes. I mean, we were huge in Japan, once finally, when, it, when Smoke in the Pit came out, it became a gold record. We'd go there and play for five, 10,000 people, but in, in the States, we were like, <laughs> fill a room. Uh, but in Europe, you know, when it finally, the album's on Electra, and we started recording as Steps Ahead. We did one more record as, as uh, Steps. I should interject that, because Steve left, Steve Gadd left, and Peter Erskine replaced him. This might have been 80, 81, something. That was the third album that we did for the Japanese, and, and the last, the last one until 86. Then we were, we were signed um, by, Electric, uh, by Bruce Lundwall for Electra Records. And that was the first album that was distributed worldwide and actually reviewed in the magazines. And then we toured Europe extensively for a few years. But the band like started changing. Don Grolnick left and Ileana Elias on replaced him on piano. Mm -hmm. And then Eddie left, and Tom Kennedy replaced him on electric bass. And I brought a list of all, maybe we can talk about it later, of all the musicians over the last 40-something years that have played with Steps. Pretty interesting how it kept evolving. Well. My age group, and I'm about 20 years younger than you, I, when we were in college in the late 70s, um, all we listened to were, were Steps Ahead and Brecker Brothers and, and uh, Steve Kahn records and, and all the, the new music. So Return, for, Return to Forever. Return to Forever, Weather Live Report. Vishnu, I mean, uh, all these Oregon. Bands. Right, Oregon. Which I was going to ask you, did you hang out with those guys in Woodstock? Yes, not only, but even before Woodstock, I think even before they moved to Woodstock, when Ralph first moved to New York, he and Glenn Moore, yeah. you know, they, they were all living together in some apartment. I forget where it was. It might have been like, you know, way uptown. Or, and I remember, uh, <laughs> I recall Ralph wondering if he just should just play piano and drop the guitar, something like that. But it's an interesting uh, mishmash of different types of music, right? Because it was all, maybe because it was all so new, the whole jazz rock fusion concept uh, with your electric band. Um, I don't know if he did the same thing, but I interviewed the guys from Oregon a couple years ago, and they said that uh, they were quite successful on the college circuit. I don't know if that's just, if you were maybe you guys were a little later than when they they formed. I don't know, but they that's where they found their first audience. Right, they were a touring band. Yeah. Whereas we were like 
Oh, New Session York musicians. All right, let's let's do it. Let's do Europe yeah. for you know in the summer, and then everybody would sort of scatter for a few <laughs> a few months, and then we would do a bunch of gigs, and there would you know, I was doing this project, I was producing, arranging, and Michael was doing whatever he was you know playing on different records. Um, so we weren't as organized, you know, we weren't a a band like <coughs> did you have like management weather report or did you do uh, it yourself later <laughs> yeah we did have management we had um a woman uh, who was my secretary for a while christine martin managed us um but she really couldn't control the guys you know it was hard to control you know i have a tour come like you know you guys want a tour and it was sort of like and mike would say no i'm busy or peter had something else that he was doing. He was recording with ECM. He had a couple of bands that he was working with, you know, John Abercrombie's. So it was hard to get the, this band together, but when we did, though, it was... It was amazing. It was really magical. If I may say so myself, once in a while I listen to the, something on YouTube and I go, wow, that's great. Well, let me ask you, the, uh, the harmony changed in uh, fusion music. It was like more open vamps as compared to 251 and bebop harmony and things that you played with Buddy Rich. Right. Uh, I, I talked to somebody, um, I talked to Jimmy Heath about uh, when modal jazz came in mm -hmm. and he said the reason that Coltrane and all these guys played so long is there wasn't a cadence they didn't hear 5-1, and they didn't know how to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Probably true, because, you know, I was talking about the white elephant, where we would play on a vamp. Mm -hmm. It would be just one, you know, D minor. Yeah. And, you know, start with some kind of funky line or something like that, or somebody would play straight ahead, and everybody would take solos. And if there was 15 people there, there would be 15 solos. And then some guys just wouldn't stop, you know? <laughs> they would just play for 10 minutes, 10 minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, and you know. But they're trying to work out something. How, yeah. do, you, how do you spin your And then the, the horn shape? sections would come in at random and back them up, and then I started writing little parts, you know. So it was really organic, the way this It was, formed. the way it, wow. it, it, it just. And then it kind of became stylized you know, fusion, this is, this is what fusion is. Probably at one point well, there wasn't a name for it. You just called it electric jazz, maybe. Yeah, it wasn't even, we didn't even like call it, as far as we were concerned, we were just playing, because we were playing in different sessions. If you're playing in a James Brown session, wow, that's a great groove. I think I'm gonna write something in that idiom. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we play on a date with uh, West Montgomery or, I don't know could be someone else. So our, I think our, the Steps book, if you look at it, there are so many different genres. There's like folky tunes, like Sarah's Touch, mm -hmm. which we played with a big band just last week. Right. It's like kind of a folk song that I wrote. And then, you know, Mike would come, Brecker would come in with, with something that's much more complex than that. You know, with a lot of like A flat over D flat over E, you know, like. Uh, and then Grolnick had his own style too, where he would combine like pools. It's, a, it's right. a, a great, great tune 
which kind of, you, uh, what would you say that is? Would you say with this fusion? Is that jazz? You know, it's got two fives. But for me, a tune like Pools is the sound of steps ahead. Yeah, and it's got that little big band kind of vibe to it, and it works great with a big band, especially the bridge.
Thanks so much for joining us. This is WLIW-FM 88.3 in Southampton, New York. Also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour, and you are listening to an interview of Mike Maneri, vibraphonist, uh, by Dave Schroeder of the um, NYU Jazz Interview Series, Dave Schroeder of the Steinhardt School. I always thought, like, Steps had a lot of tunes that were, like, a small group playing big band music, and... And Zawadol, he and I, you know, were friends our entire lives, pretty much. He always thought that, he thought of Weather Report as a, a small big band. Electric big band. Yeah, electric big band. And of course, he was coming out of that. He and I, and, and I guess Grolnick, not, not, Brett, not Mike so much. Well, you can hear kind of his tip to the big band era with uh, rockin' and rhythm. Yeah. His version, or he's voicing out the saxophone. Yeah, and, and we played Young and Fine the other night with the big band, and I, when I listened to that, I went, "Wow, this is really coming out of. This could be like Stan Kenton. This could be Gil Evans, and it could be Basie, you know, in a way." Okay, so you had your your jazz life with your electric band and your acoustic band at night. 
What were you doing at the same time during the day, all you guys? All of us were, you know, we were playing on sessions. Yeah. It was all night and writing demos with a movieola. I don't know if you know what that, people know what that is. It's when you line up the, the film, 35 millimeter, along with the audio, and along with a click track or something like that, and you write for a 30 second or 60 second commercial, you have to hit certain marks, you know. Mm -hmm. It's like pie in the face kind of stuff. And uh, <clears throat> then you were doing like 30 second and 60 second commercials were very popular. So I was doing that to make money. I had seven children at the time. But what was, what was commercially most, I guess, financially successful? Because we had talked about Toots Thielman's uh, whistling the Old Spice commercial, which, right. which played for years and years and years. Well, if you, as a musician, like all of us, you got residuals if you were on a final. There was regional finals, like say a local car dealer. Mm -hmm. Okay, you didn't, you didn't make as much money. But if it was a national, like, a, like cigarettes, then you, know, you were writing a lot of cigarette and beer commercials and car commercials. So if it was a national TV jingle, after 30, 13 weeks, musicians would get a residual. Whereas if you were a singer, singer or if you were on camera, or whistling, mm -hmm. humming, anything like that, making any noise with your mouth, <laughs> you would get money every time it was played. Wow, so is there anything you remember? Is there something that sticks out? It's like, I wrote the Hertz puts you in the driver's seat theme. No, I didn't write that, but I, uh, I was always, I was kind of a purist when it came to singing, because I did sing on a few albums, unfortunately. Uh, but I, my partner was a singer, mm -hmm. George Grant, and he was encouraging me, if you owned it, you know, your own company, you just put your name down as a singer, and then you would get residuals, and I wouldn't do that. I refused to do that. And he would say, schmuck, you know, everybody does this. So we'll get like, because he would sing, and we get double royalties for singing. And I, and I would get, you know, my whole entire life, I think I, I would get, no, I don't want to go down. Singers are singers, and I'm a musician, and, which I regret doing now. <laughs> did you whistle? I didn't whistle, but I did sing a demo for uh, one of Dave Vitamins. And they went with that. They went with my original demo, and, and it ran, uh, like they'd make a commercial and then they'd have the tag at the end, like AT&T or something like that. So if you're saying like the little logo for AT&T, you know, it, you could make $100,000, you know, whatever, $50,000, depending on how, how many times they ran it. So that was one jingle where I, <clears throat> I sang and made, like, like Toots, yeah. You know, we made some money. Did you know Klaus Ogerman? Very well. And, uh, I mean very well, not, I shouldn't have said very well. Yes, I knew Klaus and I loved, I, was, I loved his writing. But let me ask you this, I had heard that he made a lot of money. He had written the Maxwell House coffee commercial. Did he? Jingle. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that he, <laughs> He did, I but I I'm was happy hoping that for his, I'd get the definitive for Klaus, answer. and I'm happy that uh, for his 
But talk, what about friendly. Klaus? What do you, what? Well, I have a, as I walked in today, Joe. one of you guys were playing a George Benson album that I did some arrangements, like for strings and for large orchestra. Uh, Tommy LaPuma, who was a fantastic producer, produced Miles, produced so many, so many artists, Natalie Cole, on and on, San, all the Sanborn albums for years. Diana Kroll mm -hmm. and Klaus did all the arrangements right. for it, right? <clears throat> Cityscape with Michael Brecker. We need to talk about that too. And so Tommy said, you know, Klaus just did the five arrangements for George, but there's five to go or four to go, whatever it is. And he, he's busy, he doesn't want to do them. He doesn't want to fly over from Europe. Would you do them? And I went, come on, man. Like, you know, or I, <laughs> you know I've written, you know, a large arrangement, you know, f 40 pieces or more for Aerosmith. But you know, you couldn't hear what I wrote anyway. <laughs> it was heavy metal. But I was like learning. I was taking some courses with Don Sebesky and I was learning to write for strings and horns. I was curious. Horns were easy for me, but this was like, you know, 15 first violins, second violins, violas, cellos. I had some experience with jingles writing for strings, but nothing that size. Long story short, it, he convinced me and I, I wrote four arrangements and happened to write the single. And I wrote it into sort of like a, uh, sort of a funky kind of, a funky tune. And uh, what was popular then? I'm trying to think of the, what was, I can't think of the word. Soul jazz, That's funky. Soul jazz. It was like dance, like it was dance music. Disco? Disco, it was like a disco tune. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> I'm glad you forgot that word. Yeah, disco, I couldn't, I'm, I'm sure I forgot it on purpose. Uh, but anyway, if you played it, you'd say, okay. It was the only tune on the album that was kind of like that. And I went, oh, I'm gonna get this violins going, you know, which was not easy. These guys, you know, straight eights and in time, it was. <clears throat> and I'll never forget when George ran out. George, I, I, lo I love you. <laughs> he ran out of the control room and he said to me, you're gonna put me in a tuxedo in Las Vegas, exactly where I've always wanted to be, where I wanted to play. Because <laughs> it, it turned out to be sort of a hit song. Was he serious? He thought, he was, he was serious, yeah. And he wasn't kidding me. And uh, I just laughed because, you know, it wasn't as big as Breezing, one of his other mm -hmm. huge hits, like Did on this, Broadway. Was but this it, before or it after? It had the potential. This is after Breezing and I think on Broadway. Or certainly after Breezing, that was way before. But it was fun doing it and it was a challenge and you know, I looked at some of Kloss's scores and I realized, okay, he used cellos in this way, he used mutes here. And I learned a lot from just checking out his score and talking to him, you how he approached. You weren't on his record, Gate of Dreams. No, I, I never actually, I never recorded with him. Mm. I mean, I wish I had, I recorded with a lot of other, you know, well, Sebastian. He's still around. Is he still around? I think so. Good for him. <laughs> I'm glad we're both still around. Right. We must be around the same age. 
<coughs> well, we'll call I'm him. I'm 80. He's must be. I thought he was older than me. He's at 120. Maybe, maybe yeah. he just looked older. Yeah, maybe. But what a fantastic uh, arranger. Can you he had that thing with the high strings, I like know. on those Diana Krall records. He would. They were soaring up there, you know? Well, what can you tell us about uh, his record, Gate of Dreams? Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, Cityscape. Cityscape. Well, Michael wasn't around for the recording. Michael Overdub, as know far that. as I know. Cause Pretty on sure. Because on the back cover of that, there's Michael standing next to Klaus while he's conducting with the orchestra. Well, I could be wrong. That could be I could be wrong. I, I know Michael was away, and uh, and he was really, we talked, and he was going, my God, I'm going to have to do this record with Klaus Ergerman, and I, this is going to be really a challenge, you know. And, uh, and it turned out to be like a masterpiece. It, it is. Right? Yeah. I mean, I play it every once in a while. It's just stupendous. Michael was shy about reading. You know, Randy could read anything. Mm -hmm. Michael was a little shy b about reading, you know, sight reading, except he could read anything, <laughs> too. But he had just a little, you know, like I, I'm not a great sight reader, but Michael was much, of course, much better. When they, actually, when they did the Sinatra record, mm -hmm. they were in the Sinatra band. Michael was going, God, I haven't played in a big band in a long time. I'm worried about having a sight read. If I screw up Sinatra's, you know, Frank's going to go, hey, you know, it's like, what's up with this guy? Because he's used the one or two takes, you know. I think he was, you know, R Randy was doing so many more jingles than Michael. Randy was like one of the first call, there's a few guys who were first call Trump. So Randy could just, just read, you know, amazing sight reader, big band, he, you know, play was playing with Mel and Thad. Right. Michael wasn't doing that. You know, Michael was playing his own music, playing on some jingles, which were, 30 seconds, basically. Right. Randy was doing film dates, complex film scores, you know. And uh, the saxophone players that they were calling for those were not Michael. They were calling guys that played flute, you know, clarinet, alto, and tenor. Some of them have played double reeds. And he didn't do any of that. He didn't did do he? any of that. I, I begged him. I was telling a student of mine just the other day on my Wanderlust album, there's a tune called Flying Colors that I wanted him to play soprano on, and he wouldn't do it for the long, he said no for the longest time. And I, I remember in the studio, I had him by the ankles. I was, I was begging, is you have to do this. I was ready to kiss his shoes or something. <laughs>
Thanks so much for joining us. This is WLIW-FM 88.3 in Southampton, New York. Also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour, and you are listening to an interview of Mike Maneri, vibraphonist, uh, by Dave Schroeder of the um, NYU Jazz Interview Series, Dave Schroeder of the Steinhardt School. All right, I want to get your uh, short answer Impressions on the following people that oh you've Christ. worked with. Okay, I, terrible. Just sure. top it's of the uh, uh, West Montgomery. West Montgomery, the Beatle albums. Oh, you're not, on the Beatle albums. Not a fun session. Was that on A and M Records? No, that was for Creed Taylor. Oh, Creed Taylor. Okay. It was a good. It was a great band, uh, Grady Tate. 
Uh, I think it was Ron Carter. It was Don Sebesky was the arranger. Okay, I want to move on here. Well, these are people you're usually not associated with. Here's another one, Paul Desmond. You're on the the great one of the, his am great I, records, am uh, I in Summertime. That album? Oh yes, she's. I don't remember. I, I always remember <clears throat> Don Sebesky playing a lot of Rhodes. Did you find that Rhodes kind of interfered with vibes? Kind of Rhodes and vibes. That was that was tough. Yeah, that was a tough. Uh, it was like, okay, what do I play? It's better that I don't play with four mallets or you know play chords. I better play some single lines, you know, and like think as a horn player would play behind, you know, because it's so full. You so know. you didn't have roads and steps ahead. We did, we did, and when it was either we played unison lines that were written, mm -hmm. or then I would, if he was comping, then I would play with two mallets. Whoever it was, it was. You never switched to marimba. Might have been soft, but you didn't play marimba. I played marimba, but not not on the road because it was yeah. it was hard enough to schlep the vibes around. Never mind a, a marimba. But I did play it in the studio. I played it on sessions too. Billy Joel. Billy Joel, yes. Fifty seconds. That was fun, because I got a phone call from him, and I didn't. It turned out he was a fan, and I think he was like, really, loved jazz. Billy. Am I right? No, he did. And he said something pretty funny that I don't think I can say on camera, but I'll tell you later. But it was, uh, this was sort of his jazz album, I would think, so, because it was Freddie Hubbard and I who played on that, on that album. Was this the one with uh, Just The Way You Are, this record? No, no, it was called 52nd Street. It wasn't a hit album. Hmm. It was... He's holding a trumpet. He's holding yeah. a trumpet, right. Pat Martino. Oh, that was an interesting, uh, I really got that gig through Gil, uh, Gil Goldstein, who had worked with him quite a few times. And, and I was looking at the arrangements and they were like, it was like geometry. Paul McCartney. I got a call from Tommy LaPuma, who was, who was producing the McCartney album, and Diana did all the arrangements. It was her trio, and there were quite a few guests on the album. And I, the concept of the album was, <clears throat> I think Paul's father was a piano player in one of those, you know, British dance halls and played all old tunes. Because right. when I saw, when Tommy called me, he said, you know, we did the album out in the Capitol Studios out in the West Coast. It's all, it's, it's done. But Diana started playing some of these shearing you know, little licks in between Paul's lyrics, you know, like answering. And it would be great if you could double it, like shearing style. Mm -hmm. And I said, do you have any charts or anything? No, no charts. He says, then I'll, can you write it out? So there I am like, I have to like go through all these tunes and then write out everything that she played and some of them like laid back and some, so, you know, and so I went in the studio at the power station, uh, overdubbed all the licks, and then John Pizzarelli, was either John or his father? Bucky. Bucky. They both played on the album, as a matter of fact. So and they played guitar, but I had written out the music. So it sounded like, you know, George, George Hearing. And then about a month later, <clears throat> I got a call from Tommy and he says, Listen, I'd like to fly you out to the West Coast. 
We're doing a iTunes streaming live, and I think the BBC was also recording it. I could, you know, taping it. I'm not, not sure. We spent about five, six days. Um, three, I think, with the rhythm section, going over these tunes endlessly. <laughs> and Paul was, you know, there was like it was me and my shadow, really. Tunes that my mother and, and in my old fake book that I had in, back in the 40s. They were, you know, really nice arrangements, but not the standards that we think about, like Body and Soul or Stardust or something like that, but they were old-timey. And, uh, and he sang them. He was great. To, you know, he was really respectful of everyone. And then, of course, Towns, Alan came, Broadbent came in, the last couple of days with the, who arranged all the strings. And I walked in and he goes, I'll never forget it. I sent him up. I guess he went, I walk into Capitol Studios and he goes, ladies and gentlemen in the orchestra, like they didn't know who the hell I was. This is Mike Manieri, a really great vibes player is gonna join us or something like that. But I had been there all week in the old Capitol Studios, which was, Oh, that's cool. You know, Sinatra, Nat King, call the walls. I don't know if you've ever been in that studio. It's so circular. And all the walls are just covered with pictures of everyone that you, we all, all the, you know, legends. And it so was a fun, it was a fun uh, session. It's nice to know that you get a thrill out of all those things, going to the studio and being here, being part of that. It yeah, sounds and I, like it's fun for you. It was, and it wasn't that long ago. It was, you know, six, seven years ago, I, something like that. Paul Simon. Yeah. Well, that was. It was also, you know, really excellent musician. It's, you know, it's I, something you appreciate when you're in the studio and. A, I'm gonna call him a pop singer, but a great songwriter. Really knows all the changes and really has a direction, and he can actually say to you, you know, Mike, in this bar, change that chord to this, and or play less here, and and so I always really, it was always fun to play with Paul. He read music. Does he? Yeah. Well. I'm not surprised. I, no, I, I don't know. I've never seen him, you know, on the dates because he had the tunes together. We did one <laughs> album. It was called Hearts and Bones. It was right before the big, big album, which was Graceland. Graceland. I was going to say Rhythm of the Saints, but that was after. And it was an album that he really loved, that didn't do well, but but there were some great songs on it. And I remember we recorded. I was called for session, vibraphone and marimba. And it was the stuff band, it was like Gad, Cornell, Tony Levin, and Richard T, you know, that band. And then I think a month later, or I can't remember how many weeks or months later, I get a call again, and I walk in the studio, and it's the same song, but it was the West Coast band with guys. Jeff Picaro and you know, and we're playing the same tune. But there were some changes, like some bars were moved and I guess he had thought of some other lyrics. 
And that's not the end of the story because there was a, like a f another call like a few weeks later and it was Gad and, and Richard T. And, and then we finished this, we finished, we did the tune again, but it was, it was complete. Wow, interesting. And I just actually, recently we, I played with him because uh, they were honoring Steve Gadd and Tony Levin at Eastman School of Music, mm -hmm. and 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 Steve said, "Let's let's get the old Lamage band together for this. I would love for you guys to come up." And Paul flew up there and played two tunes that I think Gadd sort of made popular. You know, the, the army the army beat Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover." And I forget what the other tune, it was sort of an up-tempo and he had this real great groove going, so. We've done a bunch of things together. And the Michael Breckel Memorial at, at Lincoln Center. Yes. He came, and so did James Taylor. You worked with James Taylor? Hmm? Did you work with James Taylor? Yeah, I did something with James, I did something with his brother, as a matter of fact. I remember it was over the, uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, I played on that tune. And James, we've, I think we did, I can't remember if it was the album that Spinoza produced or somebody, but the memorial was with Bobby McFerrin and I did a duet. Mm -hmm. He loved Steps Ahead. He loved, <laughs> we were at the North Sea Jazz Festival, he would jump on the stage and either do Sing Pools with us or Michael Brecker's Safari. He sang all the parts. So at, at Michael's, Memorial, at, where they were raising money for the MDS, he said, "Let's just you get the whole band was there." Gil Goldstein had the, the band from from Pilgrimage, mm -hmm. and he said, "Let's just do a duet. Let's do pools." So he did all the parts. Wow. Boo dip, ba boom. You know, I was just going ba ba. He went bed boom. It was fun. It was fun. You ever work with Harry Nilsson? No. Hmm. Did I? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't see it him here. But sometimes, I do see... Sometimes I work with somebody and I, I just don't remember because... I do see somebody that's uh, kind of out of the ordinary. Tony Orlando and Dawn. Oh, God. Yes. I don't even remember that. Hmm. Okay. Well. I remember the, the Four Seasons and I remember it was two weeks they were trying, uh, they were attempting to do three albums. I think they get out to, and I, I could be wrong. Will we be, will I get sued? <laughs> uh, all I remember is like, I forget the name of the, the arranger who was a really great arranger. And he arranged all the Four Seasons stuff. He had Italian last name and I just, I just remember that. Charlie, somebody. And it was like, Tony Levin and the usual, usual guys, session guys. And every day, every day, it was just like six hours of, you know, doing two albums or three albums and so they could move on to another label or something like that. And it was these just descending bass lines. And I remember Tony Levin after a while, <laughs> just losing his mind and just would forget like, oh, that was the last tune that was the descending bass line. And Charlie would suddenly go, no, Tony, it was slow. It's in, we're playing a different tune, man. <laughs> it was, some, some of the days were 
most of them were fun, some of them were tedious. Well, <clears throat> I want to go from Tony Orlando. You're embarrassing some, some, me now. Somehow, I didn't say Dawn, though. I don't even remember playing on that album. Okay. I even played on the Alice Cooper record. And I well, it, was, it, looks like it looks like it was Dawn's record because it's called Dawn's New Ragtime Follies, 1973. Yeah. It right, must we'll, have been stoned or we'll, something We'll like cut that. that one out of the... Uh, all right, but this... There's a lot of sort of disco but, at records that I, would, I played on. But for yeah. some reason, I'm out of order here because it, it, I have Sonny Stitt listed. Yeah, oh, I remember that. Yeah. I remember that record. I forget who was playing organ. Really, was it McGriff or was it... Well, I see you did work with McGriff. I think he was playing organ. It was a really good, really good band. But the weird thing about it was that Sonny decided to play with an electric... Saxophone. Saxophone yeah. that sort of just blocked out everything wow. on the record. It was sort of a shame, I think. I'm trying to think of who, I think Ben Sidron produced it. That's his record called What's New, 1966. Yeah, yeah. and it, I think it could have been a, a much better record if he didn't, if that hadn't happened. I knew you from Steps and Fusion and everything you've done in the 70s and 80s, 90s, but you know, most people don't know that you, you worked with Billie Holiday and Coleman Hawkins briefly and Paul Whiteman and all those uh, people from the swing era. Buddy Rich, of course. Yes, 10 year period before I really started playing, you know, with Jeremy and some of those guys. Actually, it was 15 years before I started playing with Gad from when I was, my first professional gig with Paul Whiteman in 1952. I just started working with Steve and, and Michael, you know, until the late 70s. So it was like quite a, wow. quite a leap there. Wow. Well, we're glad I've just to been very, left, very lucky. I've just been really blessed to be healthy and, and uh, still playing. And uh, wish me luck. I'm going to Hawaii next week. <laughs> well, we're, we're glad you're still around and you're still playing. And uh, it's great having you here. Yeah, it's been like, it's been wonderful. Okay, well, we'll keep Getting doing Getting to know it, you and Rich and the kid, the young students, this, this, you know. These. All right. And seeing who... You know, I've already seen Sco, Schofield, just the other day, being here, and mm -hmm. just now. Chris Potter. Chris Potter. Bill Goldstein's like, here tomorrow. Wow. That's incredible. That's and great. I'm going to tell them that you were here, so then they'll go, wow. Say hello for me. And Steve Kahn, who you just Steve recently. Steve Kahn was here. So. Interviewed. Well, New York All City. Right. Thank All right, my you. Friend. We want to thank various people for uh, their involvement in this, in particular Dave Schroeder interviewing Mike Maneri back in 2017. Of course, we want to thank Mike Maneri for his great contribution to American music and American jazz. The Jazz Interview series comes out of the Steinhardt School. Producers are Joseph Villa, Ed Barada, Shake Up Productions, made possible by a gift. Thank you very much to Selma Geller. I want to thank Silvano Monasterios for the use of his Tropical Mirage as our theme song for the Jam Session Radio Hour. I want to thank Fernando Valaderos for participating in musical choices uh, with the fine music that you've been hearing uh, coming out of Mike Maneri's, Mike Maneri's uh, history. And also thank Rafael Alvarez for his great work in post-production and co-producing this. We thank Cleus Brandal, musical director of the Jam Session and the Jam Session Radio Hour. Thank you at WLIW for uh, having us. 
And uh, thanks so much for all you guys listening out there. And continue to stay in touch um, with us uh, on our Facebook site, The Jam Session. Also on Instagram, uh, Jam Session. And uh, uh, we'll continue to bring you fine music and fine interviews. Thanks so much. Stay well. Catch you next time on The Jam Session Radio Hour. Good night. Good night.